with us what you laid on his heart. Father, I pray you'd bless him. And I pray, Lord, this morning that the seed, the word of truth, could fall on uh, soiled hearts that would be prepared to hear your word. Father, meet us where we're at and just speak to us as you already have. Continue to lead us on as your children in the journey that you have for us. And, Father, we also pray for the many traveling on busy roads. Safety is of you, and we pray for safety as those travel down today and probably more than that coming home tonight and tomorrow. Just bless the travelers. Keep them in safety and in your care and bless us here today. According to your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you, brother. Thank you, Brother Neil, for your opening message. Appreciate that. I'd like to welcome everybody to the service this morning. Um, We are, if you're uh, sinners in need of a Savior or sinners saved by the grace of God, you should feel right at home. We hope God will bless you for coming this morning. And we're honored for all the visitors. We're honored that you came to worship with us this morning. In a few weeks, our friends and neighbors will be celebrating a holiday called Fourth of July. And there will be fireworks and lots of partying. They're celebrating that 330-some years ago, colonial rulers decided to declare their independence from British rule. It came about as a growing desire for a complete break from the King of England. But you know, we can declare our independence every day. If we have declared our independence from the tyrannical rule of Satan and our dependence and faith in the loving rule of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we are truly free. We can shout with the words of Martin Luther King, I'm free, I'm free. Thank God I'm free. I'm free at last. Please turn your Bibles to five <coughs> to uh, Matthew five fourteen to sixteen. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In Proverbs 4.18, we can read, But the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. And I'd like to talk for a minute about what it means to be a light. What does it mean to be a light for Christ? If we're shining as a light for Jesus, we should, it should reflect that we're Christians, right? But how do we do that? How can our lives light up a path that will lead others to the Savior? You know, when I was young, <coughs> I was informed that wearing plain clothes and driving a buggy was a light to the world. It was a, it was a means of separation. But many of us know people who drive horses and buggies and don't know Jesus. So what is it that enables us to shine as a light? Could it be prayer and fasting? It's certainly right to pray and fast, but Jesus tells us to do that in secret. Some will say that having all things in common are a light to the world. Some will say that non-resistance is evidence of being a Christian. And we believe in non-resistance, but so do Jehovah's Witnesses. Some say that evidence or the light of Christianity is to speak in unknown tongues, but many of those people live very carnal lives. Okay, if we're loving parents and our children are in order, certainly that'll be a light, won't it? 
But Mormons are also renowned for having godly homes or having orderly homes. About homeschooling, surely that's being a light. Only Christians homeschool, right? But if you've ever been to a curriculum fair, you know that's not the case. Maybe if we're in a church that's involved in missions. But Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses also have a lot of missions. So it must be more than that. How about if we go around telling everybody we're saved? Is that being a light? But if we look closely, we'll see many that do that. We'll see that their walk denies a relationship with God. The Bible does not tell us that any of these things are a light that shows that we're Christians. It's not our dress, our occupation, or our church home. Many of these things are good and right, but we must not confuse them with being a Christian light. You know, in the early 16th century, Anabaptism was punishable by death. And some people tried to hide the fact that they were Anabaptists, but many times they couldn't. But why? What was it that gave away their faith? How did people know? Their light was just too bright. And you know, it's not hard to see light in the dark. If it's real dark, you can see a match for a mile away if somebody lights a match. It's, it's very, very easy to see light in the dark. And the darker it is, the easier it is to see the light. <coughs> the Anabaptists were persecuted because their faith was clear and evident. But what is it that will cause us to shine as a light in the darkness of the world? Let's read John 13, 34 to 35. It's just one verse, so you don't need to turn to it if you don't want to. A new commandment I give you, I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. Here's God's answer to our question. But can that be all there is to it? In 1 John 2, 8-10, it says, Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. And while we're in First John, let's also read First John 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. This tells us that it is not possible to truly love unless we're born of God. <laughs> surely, surely uh, we're not expected to love everyone. I mean, some people just kind of rub us the wrong way, don't they? Some people are a little hard to get along with. But how did Jesus love? Does Jesus love us because we deserved it? If we think that's the case, if we think Jesus loves us because we deserve it, we have a serious problem, or at least I do. He loved us while we were yet sinners. <coughs> he tells us, As the Father hath loved us, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and your joy might be full. 
Is our joy full? Are we obeying his commandment? He goes on, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And then in 1 John 19, we read, we love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. But there has to be more to it than that, doesn't there? Is it possible that it's that simple? Romans thirteen eight to 10 says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. He that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of God's law. This teaching can be abused, just like other teaching, but then it's not, it's not uh, the real love. It does not render other commandments null and void. But proper love in- includes them. Satan knows that this is a powerful principle and tries hard to distort it. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. Love God and love love others. If you're here this morning, you're probably at least a little bit conservative. And by that I mean you probably at least have a desire to obey the laws of God. But do we often forget the most important laws? Loving God and loving our neighbors. We want to be obedient. We want to do things that please God. But these two things, everything else hangs on these two things. And do we forget about loving God and loving our neighbors and wanting to do things that are are uh, uh, less, imp- less important? <coughs> are we like the Pharisees? Do we look at the commands of God as trees in the forest of love? Is it possible that we're unable to see the forest because of the trees? It's a forest of love, but we want to, the commandments are, are uh, the trees in the forest, and it's possible that we can be unable to see the forest because of the trees. Sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? If all the commandments are centered on love, we better learn what, what it is. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. The Greek word agape, which is translated charity in these verses, is translated love more than 80 times in the New Testament. And I believe we can translate it as love without doing damage to the text. So that's what we're going to do. Love in these chapters, I believe, is a giving love, but it's it's 
Yeah, it's translated 80 times in the New Testament as love. If I speak with tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. But wait a minute. Prophets aren't supposed to be loving, are they? A prophet's supposed to be having Let's read that again. If you have the gift of prophecy and have not love, I am nothing. So I guess prophets should be a, bit, a little bit loving. Uh, and though I have a, <coughs> a gift of prophecy, I have not love, I am nothing. Let's be careful that we don't use our gifts as an excuse to disobey God. And faith, uh, if I have all faith as to remove mountains, be a lot of faith. But if I have all faith as to remove mountains, I'm nothing. And if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profited me nothing. It doesn't seem like the Apostle Paul wants us to confuse good works with love, does it? Okay, now he tells us what love is. Love suffereth long, is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not provoked, taketh not account of evil, rejoiceth not in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. You know, are we saddened by the fall of others? Especially if it's someone that we really didn't think was all that great anyway. And, and are we saddened by their fall that we sometimes hear of? Love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. Did anybody think about that this description of love is very similar to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians? But I don't think that should surprise us. God is love, and the Spirit is the Spirit of God. They're very similar. Love never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall be done away. Tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I felt as a child. I thought as a child. But now I'm become a man, and I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror darkly, but, when, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know fully, even as I also was, was fully known. But now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. You know, love is weeping with those that weep and rejoicing with those that rejoice. If we can do that, if we can truly weep with the sorrowing and rejoice with those that are joyful, I believe we will come out way ahead in the balance sheet of life. There will be much more. uh, We will be a joyful people for the most part if we're able to weep with those that weep. You know, I saw that. uh, uh, Brian was talking about the the CD that he likes to listen to with the ashes. That was my brother's family. And uh, the funeral there was a lot of people were weeping. There was a lot of very close friends. A lot of people were weeping at that funeral. 
but not long after that, the uh, Betty, their daughter that was still single, was married. And uh, at the wedding, I mean, it was just a beautiful picture of those that weep with those that weep because there's so many of the same people were at the wedding. And so they were celebrating the wedding soon after a funeral. And there were still tears. But the, the, the rejoicing with Betty for getting, when she was getting married and the weeping that had been uh, before that where there was a lot of sadness because there was nine people in the family that had died in their accident. And uh, so I, I saw that that picture really, really come true with the weeping of those that weep and the rejoicing with those that rejoice. It was a beautiful picture. Do our brothers and sisters know that we love them? Do we really love each other? You know, there's no lonelier place on earth than a heart that is without love, where there is no love in a heart. And we need to be loved just for ourselves, or rather in spite of ourselves. Not because we deserve it or, or earned it, or not because we, <laughs> we have any, any uh, real right to be loved, but we need to be loved in spite of ourselves. Do you, do you feel loved at this church? To truly love is to have a taste of heaven on earth because God is love. This message is so simple and yet so needed in our conservative churches. How often have we seen churches start up that were small in size and yet really on fire? They had close fellowship with each other. But then the next thing you know, there's discord. The need for love is not just out there somewhere in some other area. It is here. (laughs) We need to maintain the love that we have for each other. And if we think we stand, let's take heed unless we fall. We must be jealous of the love and the closeness of our fellowship. We must all be involved. Let's support the ministry in reaching, in building a real body of Christ. Let's lift up our ministry team in prayer. Let's follow them as they follow Christ. If we say or do anything that sows discord in the church, we'd better have a good reason. Let's understand that John Ray has a hard job. He needs to unify the ministry here and then bring the whole church together as a body. And most of us have come out of churches where we left because it was things that we disagreed with. Can you imagine trying to pull people like that together? As a body? I mean, let's lift John Ray and Brian and Earl up in prayer because they have a hard job. We don't all think alike. And that's okay if we don't, don't all think alike. But we need to love each other. Loving one another will take all these things and just mellow them out. We need to remember that one of the things God hates is the sowing of discord among brethren. We need to be careful. How many of us believe that attitude is contagious? Good attitudes are contagious and bad attitudes are contagious. I had a lot of employees in my life and, and uh, I always said that if I have somebody who has a good attitude and isn't very smart or not very capable, I'll find something for him to do. But it doesn't matter how good he is at work. If he has a bad attitude, I won't have him around very long. He can cause a lot of damage, especially if he's good, especially if he has leadership qualities. If he has a bad attitude, you don't want him around. In Song of Solomon, we read, His banner 
over me was love. Flags or banners were used as a means of identity. Our banners will tell others what we stand for or who we are. Why don't we stand and sing one verse of page 765 in our songbooks? It's, I'm looking for the first few words in that first verse. Uh, Myron, you want to lead that? It talks about the church's conquering banners. I want to talk about the banners. Sit down. In Numbers 2, it tells us that every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard. Now, we have a lot of different words for a banner, flag, standards, ensigns, but uh, they were to pitch by their own standard, which also meant flags or their banners. Uh, on the east side of the rising of the sun shall the standard of the camp of Judah pitch throughout their armies. And those that do pitch next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar. Then the tribe of Zebulun, and on and on. Each tribe is separate and is identified by a banner. The banner over me was love. I'd like to make that point. Our banner that should be over the church is love. The banner or flag is a means of identity. You see, Jesus is our captain. But the standard or the banner by which people should identify us as Christians is love. If we have love one for another, that's how all all men will see that we're his disciples. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high the royal banner. It must not suffer loss. In 1814, America was once again at war with England. The British were invading the United States by the way of the Chesapeake Bay. They burned the White House and several other buildings in Washington, D.C., and their goal now was to capture the the port of Baltimore. The only thing standing in their way was a fort at the mouth of the Baltimore Harbor. The British decided to attack by both land and sea. On one of the British ships that was attacking the fort at the Baltimore Harbor was a young prisoner of war. Anybody tell me his name? Teacher? Francis Scott Key. Francis Scott Key. Yeah, very good. Go to the head of the class. Don't ask me history questions. Francis Scott Key. Francis could see some of the battle what was taking place. He watched as the battle continued into the night. 
he could hear the cannons firing and the bombs exploding as the battle was in process. The next morning, Franza stared desperately. And sometime through the night came silence. And the next morning, Franza stared desperately through the fog and the mist at the fort. What was he looking for? He was looking for the standard or the banner that would identify who was in command at Fort McHenry. When the fog lifted, he saw it. It was the Star-Spangled Banner. The flag identified who was in command at Fort McHenry. The flag is still in a, is in a museum down in Washington, D.C., if any of you want to see it sometime. It's kind of interesting. But the flag identified who was in command at the fort. He knew then who won the battle. That told him. Brothers and sisters, are we marching under a banner of love? Can prisoners of war on the other side, staring through the mist, can, through the fog, can they see who's in command of the church? Do they see that we love one another? I hope you don't mind my war stories here. <coughs> if you see an artist's rendering of a Civil War battle, you will always see opposing sides carrying flags into the battle. Without them, it would have been easier for the soldiers to become disorganized and disoriented in the heat of battle. The banners were a rallying point for their armies, for their units. And part of this deadly game was to capture the banner of the other side. The flag bearer was a prime target. If he went down, someone else was designated to pick it up. Dear brothers and sisters, the enemy of our souls knows that if he can capture or destroy our banner of love, he will destroy the cohesion and the unity and thereby destroy our effectiveness as a mighty army for God. The banner over us is love, our sword, the word of God. I'd like to show you one more military allegory. Go back with me 200 years ago to a battleship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. If you want to see a battleship like that, the Baltimore Harbor has one in there that has a, you can see how they were made, the wooden battleships, the heavy cannons in there. But anyway, you're sailing along over the waves and suddenly you hear, ship ahoy! And the captain runs to the deck with his binoculars and stares into the horizon in the direction the sailor pointed. <coughs> he sees a sail and more sails, but he's looking for a flag. The banner that will identify the ship as friend or foe. When it is identified as an enemy ship, the command goes forth, man your battle stations. Artillery crews run to their positions, pull back the heavy cannons and load them, and then they open the gun ports and they tie the guns down because when they kick, they can do a lot of damage on the ship. The ship closes in on the enemy ship and soon you hear commence fire. You circle and fire and maybe try to board the other vessel until one or the other of these ships decides that it has sustained enough damage that it's compelled to surrender. How do they surrender? What do they do to surrender? They lower their flag. Brothers and sisters, if we lower the standard of love that flies over the Christian church, it is the equivalent of surrender. 
Let's rally around the flag. We have a unity. We can have a unity that this world can only imitate. It can never duplicate. I hope no one thinks of this message as too patriotic. You see, I believe patriotism is a good thing. I think we need to be patriotic. But we should be patriots for the country that we're citizens of. We're not patriots for a country that we're just ambassador, ambassadors or temporary citizens of. We should be ready to fight and die for our country. But how do we fight in this war? Ephesians 6, 7, 10 to 17. You might want to turn to that. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against (coughs) principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is how we fight our battles in the kingdom of God. This is how we exercise our patriotism. There's a story of an army chaplain encouraging soldiers in a battle. In the middle of a battle and he hollered, Keep going, men. You are building a new and better world. One of the GIs shouted back, That's your job, preacher. Our job is to blow up the other one to smithereens. Myron Weaver said something a few years ago that I thought was very profound. He said he believes that God put a fighting spirit into each one of us. And if we do not fight our real enemy, it is inevitable that we will end up fighting each other. The following is a poem. I don't even know if I can read it, but I'll try. Uh, it's called Troubling the Church. This is what can happen if we stop loving one another. There was trouble in the church. The reasons were hard to tell. But now the brethren in anything but unity did well. Harsh words were often said and lifelong friendships broken. Of Christian love and charity was left neither sign nor token. Then teachers left the Sunday school and singers left the choir. Deacon Brown in public called Elder Jones a liar. Brother hated brother and things grew worse each day. Till Satan seemed to rule the church with undisputed sway. Of course, each one was certain that they were in the right, and everyone was determined to the better end to fight. At last, the evening came around on which the congregation, one way or other, would decide the fatal complication. And as the elders and members filed in and took their places, stubbornness and haughty pride marred many Christian faces. And the young men in the group commented on the scene with many a careless word and jest, less godly far than keen. 
The powers of sin and evil must have looked on in delight. And if the blessed angels weep, they must have wept that night. For minds were charged with hatred and thoughts were laid in pride. It needed but an angry word and a match could be applied. Then quietly a stranger rose with an air so sad and meek. And in a low and trembling voice, he asked if he may speak. And when it was granted him, he turned to face the brethren there. His head was white as driven snow and bowed with age and care. Most 40 years ago, he said, our church had trouble too. And I was young and strong and proud, just like the most of you. Our side was bound to have our way, for we knew we were right. But there were others just as sure, and we had a bitter fight. Cruel lies were spoken there, and spiteful deeds were done. Such words and deeds as Christians and brethren should shun. The bond of love was broken, and <laughs> that before our hearts had knit. In Christian peace and fellowship, then, alas, our church was split. <coughs> I had an only son, he said, a lad so bright and fair, <coughs> and pointing young to the group, like some of you up there. Before the trouble came, he had, a, he had the way of life been seeking, and almost gave his youthful heart into our Savior's keeping. But when the fight began, I seemed to clean forget his state. And when it was all over, I found I thought of him too late. For when I spoke (coughs) to him of God and of eternity, he laughed a scornful little laugh and said he'd wait and see. I tried so hard to save him, for I loved him more than life. But he's always answered (coughs) with a jest about our Christian strife. The old man's head bent lower, his tears ran down like rain, and in the congregation few could their tears restrain. (laughs) They were so still, his broken voice to all was audible. He said, we buried him ten years ago, (coughs) he died an infidel. The trouble in the church has passed, and a work of grace begun. It started with the story of the aged stranger's son. For the leaders of the fight joined hands before the congregation and pledged themselves to God anew in joint reconsecration. You know, I I, uh, I read that poem. I just hope that we don't have to, as this church, I hope we remain unified and I hope we continue to march under the flag of love. We need that banner of love. We need to love each other in spite of ourselves, I realize I don't deserve the love that I'm asking all of you to have for each other. But I, I just pray that I just pray that we're able to be the church that God wants us to be. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.